I'm sure you've been wondering this question, but I have a picture that I want to show you of the car that I drove when uh, I was a student. Uh, this is, this is not specifically my car, but a stock photo of it, and this is, um, this is a 1992 Dodge chick magnet, and, um, you know, did a lot of bad street racing with it, um, but, I, you know, I grew up in the desert, and so with years of sun damage, one of the aspects of the car's personality was the sun kind of blistered the paint up on the, the roof. So if I drove too fast on the freeway, uh, I could notice behind me there would be like chunks of paint that would be like flying off on the, the cars behind. So it was, uh, uh, and it was my grandma's car before. So uh, needless to say, this was actually the car that I was driving when I first met Christina, uh, my wife. And, um, you know, she still, she still liked me eventually. Um, uh, but the, the thing was, when we met, when we hung out for the first time, this was, you know, this was the car that I had, and I was parked in a parking lot. I got there early because I didn't want her to see the car. And so, so I was there. Uh, I was like, okay, I'll be early to the restaurant. And then we, we had dinner, uh, and then the plan was, after dinner, we would just go next door and have boba. Um, the thing was, we had leftovers. And uh, so I was like... I don't, we can't walk back to the car, and she was like, oh, you're a student, so like, why don't you take the leftovers, she was working at the time, and so, she's like, you just take the leftovers, you're a, you're a, a poor, hungry student, and stuff, and I was like, no, you know, I got leftovers, like, it's okay, like, you, you can take it, and she's like, no, 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 like, you take it, so, I'm like, we're walking to, to the car, and it's like, well, maybe in the parking lot, some other car will hit me, or something like that, so we don't get there, <laughs> And uh, unfortunately, I made it, and so she had to see the car. You know, we put it in as quickly as possible. We transitioned smoothly to the, the boba place. Um, you know, the thing was, uh, when we have something that we're ashamed of, something that we feel insecure about, something where maybe we even feel like we don't measure up, uh, it makes it very hard for us to receive love. It also makes it very hard for us to give love. This becomes a preoccupation that we have of I'm staring at the fact that I have a car that I'm a little bit embarrassed of and I want to impress this person. And all I'm thinking about is how do I cover this up and make sure that she doesn't see uh, what, what's happening. And it becomes a big impediment to being able to actually just be attentive to someone uh, to actually be able to love them, to actually be able to then receive the, the leftovers or whatever act of love there is. And this is, this is something that we just, we have to find a way to deal with if we can't accept this. Um, this is, and we've been going through Galatians talking about our our inclination that we have to try to measure up and put on the, the front that, to make us ourselves more acceptable. Um, and in this, Paul starts arguing in Galatians about Jesus did everything that you need to to be accepted. He did it once and he did it fully, that there's nothing that we need to add to it, but we're accepted as we, as we are and there's no need to be measuring up to some kind of standard. That standard's already been met. 
as, as he continues in Galatians, and where we're going to pick up today is he shifts from having a, a more like doctrinal, theoretical argument until now he starts arguing more practically. He gives an exhortation about how is it then that we need to live if I don't need to be striving anymore to measure up to some standard? What, what then guides my life? How am I supposed to be living? What do I do with my time? And also, how do I make sure that I don't just go off the deep end and start becoming completely self-indulgent if there's no consequences to my actions? And so his argument today is that we are called to live in freedom, that grace brings freedom, but that freedom is meant to live, to love others selflessly. He says, embrace grace because this is going to free you to love others selflessly. And there's, there's a couple of effects of grace and that, that I want to talk about today. And so the first part, um, we see that one of the effects of grace is that we can have an intimacy with Christ that we couldn't have without it. We're going to be in, we're going to be in Galatians 5. Um, and starting in, in verse 2, Galatians 5, 2. He says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You, who are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I'll read that, that last part again. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away. The, he is saying that you cannot try to have righteousness through the law and through your performance and also have righteousness through Christ. He's saying that, there, that striving for righteousness is exclusive between these two. This, this last part where he talks about being justified by the law and that makes you alienated from Christ, this is not um, questioning their eternal security and their salvation. Earlier in, in Galatians, he, Paul is using we. He's, he's identifying with the Galatians. He's saying that we together are brothers and sisters in Christ. Even in the previous chapter, he, he says to the Galatians that you have the spirit within you, that you are sons and daughters of Christ. So this term here of describing being alienated from Christ, this is not a salvation issue. This is, this is an intimacy issue. He's saying that you can have salvation and yet you can be missing out on some of the intimacy and the depth of relationship that you should have with Christ if you're no longer looking at relating to God through grace, but you're now relating through your performance. He's saying that you can, you can know that you have grace, but if your feeling is, I need to add a little bit something to it, I'm not sure if grace is enough, then he says we're, we're not relating to Jesus with the same depth that we should have. I, think, I feel like the way that this often works is not necessarily that I'm intentionally thinking I need to add to something to what Jesus did. Is the, it's more the feeling of, okay, I know Jesus promises this, but I'm so worried that I'm going to 
assume too much about his promise, then I'm not going to be doing enough that Jesus actually has more expectations than what he's actually saying. So I just need to make sure that I have something to fall back on just in case. I'm worried about imposing on Jesus. I'm worried that I'm counting on him giving me more than he says that he, has, he must have some unspoken expectations, and so I need to have a little bit of something else just to make sure that I've held up my end of the bargain. And what Paul is saying is, that this, is the sad part about this, if this is where we live, then there's, there's a, a distancing that we're keeping ourselves from, from Christ. There's an aspect where we're saying, I'm, I'm going to stay a little bit held back. I'm going to pull back some, thinking that some of this is on my own, that I need to resolve, and I need to fix some of my sin first and make, do enough for him. And then at that point, whatever is left can be covered by, the, by God's grace that I need to deal with some of these things, and then when I've made enough progress, then God's grace will, come, will cover over that. C.S. Lewis just talks about this in, in The Four Loves, and one of the, the observations he's made is about how this keeps us distant from God. He says, man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, limitless power and a cry for help. He says we are, we are the closest to God, the most intimate with him, when in some ways we are the least like him, when we approach him with a cry for help because he's the one that has the power, the sovereignty, the ability to bring that healing and that restoration that's needed. It's, it's not us about making sure that we get our act together and then we can be close with God. It's about first running to him and saying, God, this is the reality of my heart. Can you fix me? Can you heal me? I'm counting on you. You are the only hope that I have. There's, there's a sense of, of we can ha be inclined to almost like a diversification of a righteousness, like in a sense like our portfolio or something, where it's like I want to make sure that I have God's grace, but then I also want to make sure I have a couple of other things just in case that doesn't meet the need, that then I have some of these other things that I can fall back on. And, and Paul's argument here is if that's the way that we're living, then we are becoming less and less dependent upon Christ, and there's there is now a distancing that we're causing between us and Christ. And so if I, so my performance, oftentimes this doesn't just keep me distant from you. It doesn't just, it's not just a way of masking myself from you and trying to measure up and impress you. It's also a way that I'm actually measuring up and trying to impress God that maybe we're a little bit less honest and transparent with God than we realize. That when I'm performing, I'm not actually being my true self before God. I'm showing God what I think he wants to see. There's, there's a sense of, it's almost like we feel like we can trick God, that, that like, uh, okay, I sinned, and so I need to do a couple of things to make up for that, 
Uh, I, maybe if I feel bad about myself and punish myself in some way, uh, put myself on timeout or something like that, or if I do a couple of extra good things, then maybe it's like God's watching this hand and doesn't realize what my other hand is doing. And there, there's a sense of like we, we relate to God as though we can fool him, as though he doesn't actually know the reality of our heart and who we actually are and what his response is. Just come to me. It's when you come to me and draw near to me, that's when there's intimacy. It's not when we have our act together. It's not when we've dealt with our sin. It's, it's in those moments that we come to him and where we don't have to be like him, but we're so different from him because I come to him with a cry for help. And he has, he has the power to, to help me. You know, with this, this frees us, this intimacy frees us to relate with others, to relate with others with selfless love, because how could I love someone else selflessly if I haven't experienced it first? Like, how would I know what that looks like? How would I know what selfless love looks like if no one has ever loved me selflessly? I've never trusted someone to do that. And why, why would I even want to love someone selflessly if I haven't been loved that way? Where would that capacity even come from? I, I think of, um, think of uh, the famous verse, Mark, uh, Micah 6, 8. You've, you've maybe heard this before. It says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. We've, you've probably heard this verse. Very, very simple. What does God want from you? Justice, mercy, humility. The very sentence right prior to that, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. God God says, this is how I want you to live, but I've shown you this. I've related to you like this already. You have experience of my selfless love. Now go, you know how to, what this looks like. Love others the same way. We have to embrace grace if we want to be freed to love others selflessly. Maybe, maybe it's because we're, we're now t-ball parents, but I'm, I'm watching uh, and just in front of me, the, the variety of parenting philosophies is, is like on display right now in my life. And... Uh, I'm watching how different parents uh, relate to their kids in T-ball, uh, and there's some kid, some parents. Their their approach is, I'm going to make sure that they know everything that they did wrong, so that way they can they can improve and do better. There's other parents who their philosophy is, I'm just going to encourage, you know, run to second base if you want to, and you know, like they're just going to explore and have fun. And there's just this this wide variety of of parenting philosophies, and I think about like where where did each of us learn how to relate to our kids like this? You know, it was from our parents, right? And they learned it from their parents, and this happens because you know parenting is supposed to be an act, a lifestyle of selfless love, but the way that we're modeling this is the way that it was modeled to us. And so the same thing in our faith, how could we love someone else selflessly if we haven't had it first modeled to us? 
And so grace is so important. Intimacy is so important with Christ because we can't love someone else selflessly if we haven't first let God love us selflessly. Trusting in the sufficiency of his grace frees us to intimacy with him. This is where we can experience and learn what unconditional love looks like. This is the immediate promise of God's grace. It's also a future promise to this. Paul continues in verse 5. He says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This first part he says, For through faith... Uh, For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. This is a verse and a promise that should bring us so much comfort. This is a verse that is saying there is an element of the righteousness that the gospel brings that we don't fully experience yet. There is an element where we have been told and proclaimed righteous before God, and yet there is a part of it that we don't actually experience and there is a part that we do not actually live out yet. There's a part where I am still waiting the moment where I am totally free from my sin. I'm still waiting for the moment where my heart is not inclined to go away from God and to worship something else. And he says here, this is, this is something that we hope for. Uh, The hope here and hope in in Scripture is different than the way that we use hope. A lot of times we think hope of like, I hope the Dodgers win, and it's like kind of cross my fingers, wishful thinking. Hope is, this is an anticipation, like something that we expect. It's something that's not I hope, I wish would happen. It's something I know will happen in the future. It's an expression of confidence. And he is saying, I know in the future I will fully be able to experience the righteousness that God has given me. I know that the day will come where I will be fully free from my sin and I will fully live out and express the righteousness that I have. This is something that should bring us confidence that, that those times where you keep thinking, why do I keep struggling with this? When will it end? When will I have deliverance? Paul is saying the promise of the gospel is that day will come. And what's, what's comforting is I don't have to wait to live out my purpose. I, I can do that now. There's, when we are performing for God, there is a feeling that we have that I need to hit some sort of threshold. Where like when my sin is under, under control to a certain extent, when I've limited how much I'm sinning, then, man, like then I'm going to let it rip for God. Like then I'm really going to be able to step into my purpose. God's really going to use me. If this, if this would just get a little bit more under control man, like, I would be able to do this, and I would be free to do this. I really live out this passion that I have. God's given me this, these gifts, and I'm going to be able to go and use them. And there, there's an aspect of if we keep thinking that 
it's up to me to manage my sin and to get myself to a certain level, we're going to live our entire Christian life waiting for a moment that will never come. Like if my expectation is I need to hit some certain mark and then, man, God can really use me, I've convinced myself that it's up to me to deal with my sin and God can't use me until I get to that certain mark. This, this verse gives me a promise. It gives me the hope and comfort that God can use me now. It gives me the comfort that I will have freedom from my sin and that day will come. But God's not telling me to just wait around and, and sit around until that moment happens and then he can really use me. He's saying we can go and live our purpose now. Go, you can love someone selflessly now. You can use your calling and express your gifts now. You don't have to just keep waiting for that moment where you've hit the right level. That you have a purpose that you can live out. One, one commentator writes, Paul's approach was simply to trust God to deliver all that he promised and that we anticipate in the future based on the fact that we are now already righteous in his sight. He says, you can live with the anticipation that you already have victory over your sin. And though the reality is we don't, we don't experience it right now in this moment, we can trust, we can have confidence that that day is going to come. I might be imperfect. I might look at myself and say, I, need, I wish I didn't struggle with these things, but I can also be secure, knowing that I'm loved, I'm accepted, and I can live out my purpose. When we're in this place, it also makes us a little bit, it should make us a little bit empathetic towards others. Should make us a little bit empathetic knowing that I am looking at other people who are struggling, but I'm struggling too. And I can show them grace because someone has shown me grace that I've been loved even though I'm flawed, and so other people deserve that love too. That other people are struggling just like how I'm struggling. And there should be an element of compassion that we can find in this, knowing that we didn't reach some threshold that now God can use us, but God is able to use us though we are flawed now. What, what this passage reminds me of and what I think is also important to acknowledge is that accepting flaws is not the same thing as approving of flaws. You know, I think of, I think of in the Gospels there is, there is a man who had a son that was demon-possessed. And in this interaction he has with Jesus where he asks for Jesus' healing, Jesus asks him about his faith. And he says in Mark 9, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This man accepts that he has flaws. He accepts that he has a limited faith, that he, he struggles with unbelief. He's seen his son struggle for his entire life and he's seen no one be able to do anything to fix it. And so there is doubt that's deep-seated in his heart. And he's saying, God, I'm trying to trust you, but part of me doesn't. 
And this is, a, this is an example of, he says, I, I accept that my heart doesn't fully, is not fully able to trust you, God, but will you help me? He's not approving of his unbelief. He's not saying that this is okay, but he's saying, God, this is the reality of my heart. I need you to come and meet me where I am. I need you to help me. And when, when we're in this place, this is a place that we open ourselves to grace. And this is a place that, that from this, a heart can come out that can love others selflessly. Grace allows us to anticipate a day where we will be liberated from our sins. But it also shows us that we are loved and valued right now. Grace gives us the freedom of receiving God's acceptance. We can rest knowing that the penalty of our sin is removed, but we also need to trust that he knows what is best for us. Paul, Paul is arguing and saying that you are free from the law, but then the question is, can I go and do whatever I want then? And so he says this in, in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this, he says, you are no longer subject to the law. You are not living under it any longer. But that doesn't mean just go and live however you want. This is not how you're supposed to live. It's, grace does not bring you to a place of self-indulgence. This doesn't mean that, that there's no moral code that you can, we can live as we want, that we can f fulfill our own desires and just pursue whatever makes us happy and, and our own fulfillment. But he says this, this should be a reason for us to be able to love others. Dallas Willard writes about this, and he writes about how this is a, a misunderstanding of what grace is, is. And that this is actually a very small view of grace when, when we use grace as an excuse for license. He says, grace is for the whole life and not just for forgiveness. Grace is God acting in one's life to accomplish what one cannot or will not do on one's own. He says, grace is not just the forgiveness of sins. Like when we are living in, in a place of self-indulgence, like a place where we think that there's no moral code, I'm forgiven, there's, so there's no penalty, so I can do what I want. He's saying that's a very small view of grace because it's thinking that grace is just the forgiveness of sins. That it's just there's no penalty for my sin. He's saying grace is so much more than that. Grace is, is God acting in one's life to accomplish what one cannot or will not do in one's own. He's saying that, that grace is more than just forgiving sins. It's also providing. It's protecting. It's maturing. It's encouraging. It's instructing. That grace is providing for our ongoing needs not just removing a penalty, but we live under grace that God is continuously moving towards us, providing for what we need. 
If we, if we weren't living under a grace like this, then God would say, I forgive your sins, now he disappears and we go and live as we want. Or we're left to figure it out. But God says, no, what grace is, is I'm going to remove the penalty, but I'm also going to guide you into godliness. That this is what the fullness of grace is. I think, I think sometimes, and what I want to argue to you is that sometimes we approach grace as though there's, there's this spectrum. That on this one side, there's, there's we, we mistrust grace, and so we think we need to have a whole bunch of rules, kind of like what we've been talking about at the beginning of Galatians, that have the law or some kind of moral code, make sure that you, you perform well and, and have your act together. Then there's kind of this other extreme over here where it's what this passage is talking about. There's, there's self-indulgence, there's no moral code, and neither of these extremes are healthy. And so as, as a Christian, we need to somewhere be this like moderate side here where we're not going to be legalists like performing under a law. We're also not going to be self-indulgent, just doing whatever. But somehow we need to straddle this line. And that's what healthy Christianity looks like. And it's really confusing being here because then it's like, am I, what am I supposed to do? Like, don't, don't, don't follow rules, but then also don't do whatever you want, and what, what's life supposed to look like? I, I think that this is, I think this is a, a bad view of grace. I think what, what grace looks like is there's one extreme where there's the, the rule follower trying to measure up for Christ, and this person is ultimately saying, I don't trust grace at all. I don't trust for it to provide for my needs. I don't trust for its forgiveness. I'm on my own to measure up for God. I think there's this moderating position which this verse is talking about, which is the person who's living in self-indulgence, which is saying, I trust that grace means I have forgiveness of my sins, but nothing more than that. I still trust that I know what's best for me, what will make me happy, what I need. I don't trust that grace means that. And I think the healthy, the healthy life, the life that we are called to live as Christians and to trust grace is even more extreme than that. It's saying, I trust that grace will be the forgiveness and the removal of the penalty of my sin. I also trust that it means that God will guide me, that he will protect me, he will speak to me and take me where I need to be, that he will mature me, that he knows what will fulfill me, what will actually make me happy and satisfied, that God knows all these things. He knows what's best for me. I think this is where we're called to live. I think these other two views are, are diminished views of grace. And the fullness of grace means that I'm trusting God to, to forgive my sins, I'm also trusting that he will provide for the needs that I have. Many times the way that this looks is through, is I think God provides relationships around us. People that will tell you the truth. And what I want to point out is those people, if they're doing it for your good, that is an act of grace, even if they're hard words to hear. It's an act of grace when someone is willing to mirror to you what they see in your life. It's an act of grace that someone is, is willing to say hard words to you for your own benefit. 
to say, I see that the way that you're treating others, do you, do you realize that when this and this happens, do you realize how you talk to people in that? This is, this is just as much of an act of grace. Grace is, is not just nullifying a penalty. It's God saying, I will give you what you need to mature, to grow in godliness. I will give you what you need for things that you are not able to do on your own or you will not be able to do on your own. That this is what grace is. And it's in this place that we can mature to the point where we can love others selflessly. This will bring us a maturity and a health so that we have the ability to love someone else without looking for something in return. Like, have you, have you ever tried to love someone who is unhealthy? It's hard. Like, it's really hard to, like, to love someone who is in an immature place. Like, you can't do that from an unhealthy place. You need everything you have, every ounce that you, of, of compassion and love that's in you, and so you have to get to a place of health before you can go and love someone unhealthy, who, who's unhealthy. So accept the grace that's around you. The people that, that God puts in your life that are willing to speak truthfully to you, consider before you respond defensively to them, consider is God using them to show his grace to you? I know, I know when people say hard words to me, my initial reaction is, they're wrong, they didn't see the full thing, they don't get quite get what, what's going on, like, they're just, that's their perspective, it's their opinion, who are they to say those things? And, and pause and realize, this might be something, God, a way God is actually showing his grace to us. This might be his, one of his provisions and expressions of grace. But we can grow from this, and we will be more free to be able to live out the purpose he has for us. Paul uses Galatians 5, and he says there are practical expressions of how we live being freed. The fact that we are accepted and we can be secure in that does not mean that we need to go back and find some other kind of rules to satisfy. It does not mean that we go and live as we want. But he said there's practical applications of this puts us in a place that we can be healthy enough that we can live out our purpose and love others selflessly. He says, but you need to have intimacy with Christ. Let him love you and trust that. Trust that your future is bright, that you will have freedom, and there's a promise that you will have freedom from your sins now. That you will fully be able to experience the righteousness that God says you have. But also trust that God's grace is not as small as just the forgiveness of sins, but it's so much more than that, and it's the provision of what we need throughout our life. He says these are some of the effects of grace, and these will put us in a place where we can be healthy enough to live out our purpose.